Do you know how old George Wishart was when he was burned at the stake for his faith? 24 years old. How many here are in your 20s? Wishart wasn't the only one. Throughout the, the town of St. Andrews, you'll find other places in the cobblestones. P.H. for Patrick Hamilton, who was the first, another young man to die for his faith. Walter Milne. An X marks the spot where he was burned for his faith outside of the cathedral. Every place you turn is a place that was watered with the blood of people who were willing to die for their faith so that you might know this faith that we worship today, this Lord that we worship today. Pretty powerful. That's what we're here for. That's why St. Andrew's Sunday matters to us. And I'm glad you're here to be a part of it. When I was doing youth ministry in Bakersfield, one of the annual events in our program was Snake Man. Snake Man came in and he brought a collection of serpents and he would entertain and educate all of the kids who were there. It was a very delightful time. One year, Snake Man showed up and we had a room full of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. And as you can imagine, as they rolled in the cages full of all of these various snakes, they were very excited. The room was buzzing. Snake Man got their attention and he said, could I have a volunteer? And one fifth grader raised her hand. She said, oh, me. So she ran up to the front and he said, would you like to hold a snake? And he said, and she said, yes, I would. So he pulls out this beautiful iridescent green tree snake and he puts it in her hands. He said, he's very gentle. You hold him and I'll talk about him. Okay, she'll hold him. So snake man turns around and begins to do his spiel talking about this snake. But while he's talking, he's interrupted by the little girl who says, he's biting me. He's biting me. Snake man said, no, he's not biting you. He's, he's gentle. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. He kept talking and she kept saying louder and louder. He's biting me. He's biting me. Snake man turned around, took a look. Sure enough, the snake had clamped its mouth right on the little girl's arm. So snake man slapped the snake, silly, knocked it out of her hands. But that snake just dangled there from her arm and she stood there screaming, He's biting me! He's biting me! He's biting me! Snake man was beating the snake and all the kids were screaming. (laughs) Finally, snake man knocked the snake off of her arm and we took a look and there on her arm was a perfect bloody snake mouth imprint. Snake man didn't come back to the church after that. That was the end of Snake Man. When the serpent took a bite out of Adam and Eve in the garden, he left a mark. He left a scar that we still bear today. And we've been talking about the way that the fall has scarred us, has affected us. But today we're going to see it very, very clearly because now we turn to the part where God says, this is the price you pay for disobedience. This is the part of the fall called the curse of God. We turn to Genesis chapter 3 to read about how we have been scarred. As you're listening, pay special attention to verse 17. Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through the painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. These are ancient words spoken many, many, many decades, centuries, millennia ago, Father. And yet they speak to our reality right now. Would you show us how that is so? How this is not just an old story, but this is new truth for us. And because we believe it, may we have better life now. In Jesus' name, amen. God is a good parent. A good parent, when they say, if you do something, these are going to be the consequences. A good parent follows through on the consequences. Right? Ever watched a mom in a grocery store who threatens, 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 but never follows through? And the kid just goes crazy because he knows mom's not going to follow through. God followed through. He told Adam and Eve, on the day that you eat of this fruit, there's going to be deadly consequences. And of course, they ate of the fruit, and now God spells those consequences out for everyone that was involved. First of all, the serpent. He says, from now on, you're going to crawl on your belly. You're going to eat the dust. And I am going to put enmity, that is, hatred between you and the woman and all of her offspring forever, for all of human history. Now, your, your first immediate response might be, for all of those who are just completely creeped out by snakes, how many of you are completely creeped out by snakes? I can tell by how quickly the hand goes out how creeped out you really are. You might say, that's me. The curse follows me because I hate snakes. But of course, this is a much deeper, more spiritual, more profound issue than just the fact that you're afraid of slithery creatures. Remember that the serpent was the devil, Satan. We are told in Revelation that he was in disguise there. And what this curse is saying is that from now on, you, the tempter, the devil, the enemy, you will be at enmity with this woman and all of her offspring going forth, forward. You're going to be fighting. You're going to tempt them. They're going to resist you. It's going to be a great battle forever. As you think back over your weekend, some of you, I'll bet you would say, hmm, there was some stuff I shouldn't have done. I'm embarrassed that I did it. I wouldn't want anyone to know what I did. And at the time, I knew I shouldn't do it, but I was just kind of tempted and I didn't resist and I feel awful about it. If that describes you, either this weekend or any weekend of your life, then you realize that the curse continues. The battle with the tempter continues. But in the middle of that curse, did you notice there's actually a piece of good news? Did you see it? It comes in verse 15. We read this weird statement. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Who is he? Who is God talking about there? Yes, always a good answer. And in this case, it's true. Jesus God is talking about His Son. He's looking millennia ahead to when the Son is going to come and do battle with the serpent, with its descendant of Eve. God says the, the devil is going to strike Him. He's going to wound Him. And of course, He did exactly that on the cross, didn't He? But He said, but He will not be victorious because the Son 
Your son, my son, will crush his head with his heel. In other words, he says, although the serpent is going to continue to bring grief, one day I will be victorious. My son will be victorious. Right there in Genesis, we see Jesus appear. Now comes the woman's curse. How many moms out there? Remember labor? You can thank Eve for every one of those labor pains. Not only is that the case, the whole marriage relationship was harmed by the fall. You'll remember, won't you? Adam was given charge of the garden. He was to care for his wife. He had spiritual responsibility. But now we read with the fall that that responsibility turns into domination. Did you see the words? Part of the curse. He will rule over you. That's not the language from before the fall. Every time you see a husband bullying his wife, Instead of providing loving self-servant leadership, you are watching the curse at work. That is not what God intends. But now we come to Adam's curse. And that's what I want to focus on for the rest of this morning. Now remember, since they ate the fruit, we have seen all kinds of death already appear in the garden. All kinds of alienation. The first alienation was between them and who? God, remember? God came looking for them and they hid from Him. The second alienation was with themselves. Remember, they were ashamed and they covered up. They were alienated from themselves. The third alienation was alienation in the relationship between them. Remember, they started pointing the finger of blame at each other, tossing each other under the bus. Already then we're seeing relationships falling apart. We're seeing death do its dirty work. But there is still more alienation, more death to come. And we find it in verse 17. What is the alienation from in verse 17? I ask you to pay attention. What else? I heard it, someone. Is alienation with what? The earth. The very soil of the ground. Listen to it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So even the earth suffers from the fall of humanity. You don't have to be a radical environmentalist to notice and to care that the earth has taken a beating at the hands of humanity, right? You don't have to be an earth firster to know that and to realize that somehow we have failed in our stewardship of caring for God's world that he gave to us. But there's more to it than this. The curse on the earth also ends up being a curse on the man. Did you see that? Because he is told that from now on, the ground is going to be filled with thorns and thistles. From now on, his toil is going to be painful. By sweat, by hard work, will he produce the food that is going to feed him. He's going to have to work hard in order to survive. That's part of the curse. When we build houses in Mexico, and you guys know this better than anyone else, the first step that you've got to do after sorting the lumber is what? Begin to dig out the, 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 the plot for the, for the uh, foundation, isn't it? And you have to do that by hand. You have an axe and you have a shovel and you're pounding away <clears throat> at that by hand. How many of you have ever done that kind of work? Pick and shovel work. I'll tell you what, when we are down there and we are going at it with a pick, clearing out that rocky, sun-baked site one shovelful at a time, by the time you're done, God isn't the only one who's cursed that ground, is he? 
you got a few curse words of your own. The curse in the garden affects everything, doesn't it? It even affects man's work. In fact, the Bible has something to say about work, a lot to say about work, and right in this story. So here's a little quiz. I'm going to ask you three questions, yes or no questions. I want you to answer them, and you're going to help me see what the Bible says about work. Question number one. Does, what does the Bible, because of the curse, we have to work, yes or no? Okay, yes, where's a little divided house? Question number two, the primary purpose of our work is to take care of your family and yourself, yes or no? You're suspicious now, aren't you? How about this, the purpose of work is to make money, yes or no? The answer to all three of those questions from Scripture is no. No, no, no. Work is not part of the curse. Toilsome work is part of the curse. Hard work is part of the curse. But turn back. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Verse 15. This is before the fall occurs. I want you to pay attention to this. This is important. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and take care of it. And you say, wait a second. This is supposed to be paradise. Paradise means that he's just lounging around, drinking Mai Tais, enjoying himself, right? How can paradise include labor? That's what it says. And doesn't the story teach that work is primarily about taking care of your family? Yes or no? No. He doesn't have any family yet. Eve hasn't even been created yet. Adam is given labor before he has anyone to care for. And obviously, since there was no money in the time of Genesis, it wasn't about making money. So, if work is not a part of the curse, if work is not primarily about taking care of your family and making money, then what is work for? All of you work, have worked, or will work. What are you working for? What is the Bible's answer? Not the world's answer, not the tempter's answer. What is God's answer to the question, why do you work? Here's the answer, ready? Work is worship. Your work is worship. It is the way that you honor and serve God. We were created by God to work. It's not part of the curse. From the beginning, We were created by God to work. It is part of our spiritual wiring. And when we work and when we labor, whatever it is we are called to do, if we do it well especially, we are worshiping God. Have you ever thought about work that way? When we labor and especially when we find the sweet spot where our gifts and our our talents align themselves with our work, we are tapping into a deep sense of the original creative purpose for us. For all of us. But especially for men. Men, hear this. This is especially true for you. Think about it. How do men greet each other when they are strangers? The first words out of their mouth is the names. They shake hands. What's the next sentence out of their mouth? What is it? What do you do? And what are they asking when they say, what do you do? What are they asking? What are they asking? How do you work? What is your work? Where do you work? That's what they're asking. Sometimes it's easy to criticize that as our initial knee-jerk question to each other. It seems shallow. Maybe we ought to be saying, I, 
I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Christ, or I'm a husband and a, and a dad. Maybe that ought to be our, our response. And certainly there are ways in which the, the curse continues to affect our perspective on work. There are men who are laboring right now at jobs that they don't love. Who are, who are laboring at a place where they do not feel appreciated. And there, on the other hand, are men who love their jobs so much that they are workaholics. They neglect their wife, they neglect their kids. One of the issues our youth staff deals with again and again is kids who have every material possession in the world and an absentee dad. And they're frustrated about it, resentful about it. The devil has certainly managed to twist work into an obsession that can be damaging to us. But at its core, beneath the question, what do you do that every man asks another man, is the fundamental and spiritual question, uh, statement, which is this. We were created to work. God created us to worship him with our work. This explains why unemployment is so emotionally and spiritually devastating, especially for men. We, when we are unemployed, feel things like this. I have no purpose. Nobody wants me. I'm not caring for my family. I have no worth. All you got to do is ask a man who's ever been unemployed and they'll say all of those things are true. None of them are true, actually, but that is what we experience. These are the cries that rise out of the heart of us because of the fact that God created us to worship Him with our work. When we are not working, something is missing spiritually for us. This isn't something you hear very often in church. And I would say to my discredit, it is something you've not heard enough from this pulpit either. I can tell by your answers to the earlier questions. You often get the sense that the really spiritual stuff, the real worship of God is the stuff that takes place here on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights or in life groups. The real mission and ministry is what takes place when we go to Mexico or when we're teaching a Sunday school class. What we do on Monday through Friday, that's just putting beans on the table. It's just making it possible for us to come here on Sunday or Sunday night or Wednesday night and do the really spiritual stuff, to do the real ministry. If I have ever said anything that sounds like that, and for every time that I have failed to make this point more clearly, I ask you to forgive me. For every businessman and every businesswoman who has ever left here feeling like their day job, was somehow second rate, not nearly as holy as what preachers do. Forgive me. For every mom who has ever felt like her vocation to raise her children to love Christ and love their neighbors was somehow less than what happens up here on a Sunday morning, forgive me for that. And for every student who never understood that when you study well, that is your calling right now. That is your labor. When you do that well, you are honoring Christ. If I haven't made that clear to you, forgive me for that. There's a gap between Sunday morning and Monday morning. And it is a, it's not a gap of God's design. It is a gap that has become the message of the church and her leaders. It is we who have failed to declare what Genesis shouts from the very beginning. That your work is worship. And whether you are a banker or a firefighter or a police officer or a carpenter, or a doctor, or lawyer, or garbage man, or accountant, or stockbroker, or mom, or student. Whatever God has called you to do, 
for your vocation. That is a spiritual calling. That is your ministry. And when you do your work as if you are doing it for the Lord Jesus, you are worshiping Him. What does this look like? John Lennox tells the story about a a young apprentice electrician who was hired along with a group of seasoned veterans, journeymen, to wire new houses. And about a week later, he called the youngster in and he said, you've done only half as many houses as the rest of these guys. What's going on? Why are you so slow? And he said, well, the regulations are very specific and explicit. It takes a long time to do everything correctly. And particularly when, when I'm wiring under the floor, it's especially complicated. It, I can't do it any faster. His boss rep- replied angrily, who looks under the floor? And the boy said, my Lord does. My Lord looks under the floor. And that young man knew exactly what it meant to worship God in the way that you do your work. How about you? How about you? If you knew that your work was worship, if you knew that your office was a holy place, that your desk was an altar, how would that change the way that you behave? How would you approach your vocation? How about a restaurant? Let's take that. Let's assume that the restaurant is a church. And that everyone who works there is a minister of Jesus Christ. What would it look like? What would it look like if the hostess realized that the way that she greets that person might be the first kind word that person has heard all day? That the the server, when she brings the food to the table, decides that she's going to do this for the sake of Jesus Christ and love the person that she is serving. What would it mean if the cook realized that that she was presenting a creative act of worship every time she put a meal up and called, and called the, the uh, waiter to come and get it. What would it mean if, if the, the dishwasher realized that every dish he washed, he was doing it to the honor of the Lord. He was going to make it as clean as anyone has ever washed dishes. That would be an understanding of what it means to worship God through your work. And would it change the way that you greeted or waited or cooked Or washed, if that was you. There are only a handful of us who are professional Christians. Most of us are amateurs. Just as God intended it to be. But your ministry as an amateur in your vocation is no less important, no less significant, no less spiritual than anything that I ever do up here on a Sunday morning. God gifted you for it. God called you to that. God ordained you to do that purpose. And you might have more opportunities in one week at your job to speak the truth and love of Jesus Christ into the lives of unbelievers than I'll have in a, in a year of Sundays. So do you believe that your work is worship? Is your desk an altar? Have you ever committed your vocation to the Lordship of Christ? I know that most of you have given your hearts, you've con- committed your life to Christ, have you ever committed your work to Christ too? A doctor friend of mine told me this week, because of the year of good news, I began to think about the way that I treat my my patients. And so I have started trying to sense where they are spiritually. And when I feel led to do it, I ask them, would you like me to pray for you? That's vocation. That's understanding his practice as mission and ministry. 
Have you ever told the Lord, I offer the, all of my skills, my, my career, my labor, I offer it up to you as an act of worship. I will do it like I was doing it for you. Please take the work I do and the relationships that I develop and the opportunities I have every single day on the job or at school to witness to your salvation. Please take them and bless them. May my work, my study, my labor honor you. In a moment, we are going to see the names of every member of Chapel Hill who has passed away over the 50 years of our life as a church. Every name that appears up there represents a life of labor. When your loved one appears there, stand up to honor that person and remain standing until the end. Here's the deal that might be a shock to some of you, especially if you're younger. One day, your name is going to be up there. I know you don't believe it. Some of us believe it more, right? One day, your name is going to be up there Two, just a few letters that will represent your legacy. The largest part of your life will be devoted to work. So as, as we watch these names, I want you to ask yourself this question. Would I be proud of the way that I worship God through my labor? Will the legacy of my vocation bring honor to Christ? And if you aren't sure that is true, If you don't think that you are working in such a way that it honors and worships the Lord, there'd be no day like this, no moment like this to rededicate all of your life, including the Monday through Friday life, to the Lord who created you to work and then redeemed that call in Jesus Christ. Amen?